All right, let's pray. Father, I thank you for another week, another morning. Lord, I thank you for the beautiful weather that we've had, and I thank you for this time that we get to meet together. I pray that you would uh, just help us to focus on your word this morning, Lord, that we would get all of our, our needs met this morning, whatever it may be, Lord, if we're looking for love, comfort, exhortation, conviction, whatever it is, I pray that we would find it this morning in your word, in you, and that you would speak to us, and that we would be responsive to it, Lord, in a good way, that we would be quick to listen and, and slow to speak, Lord, that you would do your work that only you can do. And so we just thank you for this, this day and this opportunity. In Jesus' name, amen. Luke chapter 14, we're going to be starting in verse 7, because last week we only got through the first six verses, um, and this week we're only going to get through 7 through 14, but we're picking back up where we left off last week, where Jesus was invited to a Pharisee's house, rulers, one of the rulers of the Pharisees, so a, a pretty prominent religious guy, um, and remember, what was the whole reason for inviting Jesus there? Yes. Exactly, but, but not just heal him. There was a specific thing about the healing. Yes. It was on the Sabbath, right? And healing somebody on the Sabbath would be considered work, right? And the Sabbath was considered a day of rest. So if you were to do work on the Sabbath, well, then you just broke the law, right? But remember, that wasn't God's law. This was whose law? The Pharisees. It was their, it was their addition and or interpretation of the law, mainly in addition to it. And so it wasn't really God's law. Or when I want to say it really wasn't. It wasn't God's law. So Jesus is going to blatantly break their law to show them that their law is not the standard, that the standard is God's law, right? We, we are not the lawmakers when it comes to morality, when it comes to goodness, when it comes to right and wrong. We're, we don't make that, right? We can't because we're, we don't have that in us. We are not God. Now, obviously, we have made man-made laws in regards to, like, the law that we have here as, as in, within the government, right? Within, you know, the law of the land, like, you can't speed, you can't steal, yada, yada, yada. But that's not what we're talking about here because this is an interpretation of God's law when it comes to biblical things, when it comes to either adhering to God's law or breaking God's law. And so Jesus is invited to one of the rulers of the Pharisees' homes, and they do this because they want to watch him, right? We see this in verse 1 of chapter 14, that they watched him closely. Like, you, they intently watched them. Have you ever felt like you've had some, like, you could tell somebody was watching you, but without looking at them, right? you like, you could just feel it somehow. Imagine someone intently watching you for an entire night to see what you would do. Wouldn't that be like, that would be hard. But this is what they're doing, right, to, to Jesus. And they, and they try to set him up to fail in their eyes. They try to set him up to fail in their eyes by inviting this man who had dropsy, right? He had this condition where he had, you know, the, this part of the symptoms was him swelling up. And, and ultimately, it was not a, a good thing because it would ultimately lead to death. So they're using this guy to set up Jesus. And Jesus answers them without them even saying thing or asking anything, and he speaks to them in verse 3, and he says, is it, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And we see that they couldn't answer that. We talked about this last week, and we talked about how they, why they couldn't answer it. They couldn't, they couldn't respond one way or the other, because either way, they would be wrong. 
All right? So they kept silent. And so what Jesus did is he took him, he healed him, and he let him go. And that phrase, the words, let him go, is similar to the loosening that we see in chapter 13 with the woman that has the spirit of infirmity in chapter 13, verse 12. And he says, woman, you are loosed from your infirmity. You are freed, right? You are set free. It's only Jesus who can truly do that for man. Because man is initially, you know, in bondage, right? And we're ultimately in bondage to, to what? To sin, right? And it's only Jesus who can set us free from that, who can loose our chains from that. And so he does this for this man. He does it for the woman in chapter 13, and he sets him free. And he answers them in verse 5, and he says, Which of you having a donkey or an ox that has fallen into a pit will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath? And again, we see that they could not answer this question. Jesus had the perfect question to make them silent. He had the perfect question to make them look like fools no matter which way they answered. And so they could not answer him regarding these things in verse 6. So Jesus here ultimately exposes their hypocrisy. Because again, they could not answer in a truthful way. And if they were to answer, it exposes how wicked and bad their hearts are. And so we see their hypocrisy being exposed by revealing their hearts. And this is interesting because... The whole time, they're trying to expose Jesus, right, by setting him up. They're, like, trying to be clever. They've got this all planned out. They're like, we're going to catch him. And yet what happens is the roles are reversed. It's the tides are turned that Jesus now is exposing them in their hearts. And we're going to continue this thought here in verses 7 through 14 where Jesus is going to continue to expose their hearts, that Jesus sees something in them that needs to be revealed. So, Let's read verses 7 through 14. It says, So Jesus told a parable to those who were invited. So everyone who's there, he's speaking to. And when he noted how how they chose the best places, places, saying to them, When you are invited by anyone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place, lest one more honorable than you be invited by him. And he who invited you and him come and say to you, Give place to this man, And then you begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit down in the lowest place. So that when he invited you, when he who invited you comes, he may say to you, Friend, go up higher. Then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And verse 11 is the main point of this entire section. Then Jesus also said to him who invited him, when you, when you give a dinner or a supper, don't ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, nor your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just or the righteous. And so Jesus here now begins to speak to all of them. And obviously at the end of this, he he really is speaking to the ruler, the Pharisee, the one who is hosting this dinner. But Jesus is going to speak a parable here. And a parable is a real life illustration that has biblical truths to it. Okay. And so this is why we can can read this and we can understand it in in an experiential way 
because we've been a part of it, or maybe we can understand it hypothetically. It's a real-life illustration, but it always has biblical truths set to it. They're not fables. They're not fancy stories with morals. Again, they're something that is familiar to us, and it's used to bring forth God's truth. And ultimately, it brings forth God's truth to those who hear and to those who listen. Because to those who aren't listening, to those whose eyes are blinded, it means nothing to them. To them, it's just a really fancy story. But that's not the intention of it. So Jesus gives this story here of a wedding feast, of a wedding, right? But we see here in verse 7, before he even gets to the story, it says, He noted how they chose the best places. Remember, again, Jesus has flipped the script. They first, in verse 1, watched him closely. But what is Jesus now doing? Watching them closely, right? And what he, he notices something, right? The one thing that he notices is that they chose the best places to sit, right? I mean, I think we can all understand this because we've all been, I mean, we're all selfish and prideful people. So, you know, when it comes to the best seats, we all rush and want it, right? Uh, we're not often ones wanting to give it up for someone else and take the lesser seat. Right? And usually in a setting like this, the most prominent seat was the one closest to the most famous, powerful, respected guy or woman in the room. Right? It's like being the right-hand man. If you were further back, well, then that kind of shows that you're you know, probably not as honorable as the others. But this is what Jesus is looking at and noticing. And I think what, he's, what we're going to realize as Jesus sees this is that ultimately by their actions, by choosing the best places, he's really exposing, or I don't want to say he's exposing, I mean he will, but ultimately they're exposing their hearts by their actions, right? So by noticing how they're taking the best seats, it's revealing to Jesus and to anyone that's watching that their hearts are really selfish and self-motivated, right? It's very prideful, And that's not how Jesus has created us. And specifically, for those of us who are born again in new creation, definitely not how God wants us to be. Now that we have this mind of Christ, that we are this new creation, that we follow the example set by us from Jesus, we don't act this way, right? We we look unto others, and we love others before ourselves, right? Ultimately, because that's what Jesus has done and is doing. And so again... Jesus could tell the condition of their hearts just by watching them closely at this party. And it's, it's, it's interesting because, and I'm not comparing myself to Jesus because I think any one of us can do this because we've been given the spirit of discernment and just wisdom and understanding of the word, that honestly, if you watch someone closely enough, their hearts will be exposed by the way that they handle themselves, whether that's through their actions or their words, right? I mean, if you're around somebody long enough their hearts will truly be exposed, right? I mean, because obviously now when we come into this room once a week for, let's say, like an hour, I mean, all of us can fake something for an hour, right? Am I right? Yeah, so I mean, but the longer it goes, the more intimate we become, the, the longer that we are together, you know, it's, we, we, we can't fake it. And so ultimately our hearts get exposed. And so, you know, if, if what you show within that hour is shown, you know, Eight hours later, well, great. It's not hypocritical. It's who you are, 
But again, ultimately your heart and the condition of your heart is going to be exposed by your actions. And I can say from my point of view that sometimes it's very easy to see pretty quickly amongst people, right, how they treat one another and how they, they treat themselves in regards to others. And so, again, these religious leaders, they looked very religious, right? I mean, they, they could pull off the, the appearance in front of people for an hour, right, that they were holier than thou or that they were greater. But really, we see by their actions, it points to their self-centeredness. Rather than caring for others, they were just looking out for themselves, and so Jesus notices, again, what do they do? They choose the best places, right? They weren't looking for the most comfortable seat. They were looking for the most prestigious seat. And so, again, in this day, right, in this day, the seating arrangement at a dinner showed a, a definite order of prestige or honor. The most honored person sat in a particular seat, and the next most honored person in another place. And so it goes forth down the line. Right, and at the end of the line was the least honored person. Right? So in verse 8, Jesus starts this parable. He says, When you are invited by anyone to a wedding feast, don't sit down in the best place. So Jesus is not only just giving us a parable, but I think he's also giving us like a life lesson. Right? A life lesson, something that we, we can apply. But ultimately, it's not just a life lesson, but again, there's a biblical truth that's behind it that is set forth not just when it comes to weddings or some type of setting where there's seats involved, but how our hearts should be all the time. And ultimately what it's going to show and expose, it's God's heart towards us. I think that's the, the main thing that we're going to see in this parable, and I'll, I'll bring it together at the end. It says, don't sit in the best place, lest, which means to avoid the risk, because it's a fancy word, we don't ever use it, to avoid the risk, one more honorable than you be invited by him. And he who invited you and him come and say to you, give place to this man. And then you begin, begin just like Joe, with shame, to walk to the lowliest place. That was perfect timing, dude. So, there you are, right? You're, you're sitting at a spot at a wedding. How many of you guys have been to a wedding? Yeah? How many of you guys have been to a wedding where, like, you barely even knew the people getting married? Okay, cool, cool. <laughs> and I'm like, why am I even here? I don't even know these people. Although you get free food, so that's, that's nice. Have you ever gone to a wedding and sat in the front row? Yeah? Why did you sit in the front row? Because you're the flower girl? You were the what? You were a bridesmaid? Bridesmaid? Flower girl? Were you in the wedding? Would you ever, if you didn't know the people well, and you weren't a part of the wedding, would you ever sit in the front row? Why not? Why wouldn't you sit? That's the best seat. Like, you got the best view. Why wouldn't you sit in the front row? Because you're shy. You're sitting in the front row right now. <laughs> so obviously we know that the front row is usually reserved for the wedding party, right? For the, bride, the bride's family, the groom's family, uh, or people with, within the, the wedding. 
Uh, well, actually, people within the wedding are usually up, standing up with them. But usually it's reserved for, like, the mother and the father and the grandparents, right? Could you imagine going to a wedding and you then, knowing that's what it's reserved for, going and sitting there, right? Like, none of us would do that because we know that we, we are not greater than, in this specific setting, of a woman and a man getting married, that if this chair in the front row is reserved for the woman's mother, well, she deserves to sit there. Right? She is more honorable than us in that setting. And no, like how, how shameful would it be? And Jesus, this is what Jesus is getting at. How shameful would it be if you went up there and you sat in her seat and now they have to come up to you. You know, the usher comes up to you and says, dude, you, you got to move. This is the bride's mom's seat. Right? And then you got to get up and the, like right as the service is starting, everyone's sitting down, they watch you and you got to walk down the aisle and find the last seat. Right? This is what Jesus is getting at as an example. There's, there's shame that is involved in us exalting our own selves. Like, we cannot exalt our own selves. And honestly, it's, it's rather foolish when we try to exalt our own selves. It, it brings us to a place of foolishness and ultimately to a place of shame because once we try to exalt ourselves, we become, you know, pushed back and flattened on our face, you know, like it, pride comes before, no, pride comes before, no, pride comes before destruction, a haughty spirit before the fall, thank you, right, so, so once you try to exalt yourself, I know usually we think pride comes before the fall, but really it's pride comes before destruction, a haughty spirit before the fall, so what happens is, we try to exalt ourselves, but we end up hurting ourselves, right? And what we see all throughout Scripture is that if we want to be exalted, it should be done by Christ and Christ alone. It should be done by God because he is the one that has the abil- ability to truly exalt. And so there's this shame that comes when you're now sitting in the least spot. and You have to make that walk, right, where you find out that you're not as important as you make yourself to be. And so again, Jesus reminds us of the shame that comes with this. When we allow others, especially God, to promote and lift us up, lift, lift us up, then we don't have the same danger of being exposed as someone who exalted our own selves. And the Bible reminds us all throughout Scripture that we should not play with the self-promotion game, that we shouldn't try to exalt ourselves, that we shouldn't think highly more highly than we ought to of ourselves, right? Do the hard work, do the good work, stay humble, stay low, stay meek, and then it will be Jesus, it will be God who will exalt you. It will be the Lord who will lift you up. It will be God who raises you up. Because listen, at the end of the day, like God, God sees all, and God has the ability to raise us up. Psalm 75, 6-7 says this. Interestingly enough, Pastor Kevin quoted it this morning, which is always funny because somehow we always correlate, but he's in a completely different book. He says, For exaltation comes neither from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south, but God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. Ultimately, at the end of the day, God is the judge. God is the one who can actually truly judge and see if someone should truly be exalted or put down. 
Proverbs 26, 6-7 says, Do not exalt yourself in the presence of the king, and do not stand in the place of the great. For it is better that he say to you, Come up here, than that you should be put lower in the presence of the prince whom your eyes have seen. Right? You need Be patient. Do the good work. Humble yourself. And the exaltation will come. Like, I, I believe that's a, a promise. And it's, and it's not, you know, always a case of that you'll be exalted all the time here on earth by God because we've, we've been humble and we've been doing the good work. But ultimately, at the, at the end of time, because this biblical truth is speaking of a, an, an eternal truth, a kingdom-minded truth, that ultimately at the end of the day, at the end of, you know, when we're in eternity, there will be an exaltation that takes place. We see this even happening with Jesus' own disciples. You guys might remember James and John. What was their nickname? The Sons of Thunder. Why were they nicknamed that? They were loud. They were loud. Feisty, loud. I mean, they were always arguing and vying for the top spot and seeing who's greater than the other. Uh, yeah, they, they wanted to strike down some people. And God's like, what do, you, what do you, no, calm down, okay? They don't need to be struck down right now. But even their mother got involved in their, in their lives. I mean, these are grown men, right? And their mother's trying to vouch to Jesus, like, you know, let them sit at your right hand and your left hand, right? And even James and John argue about this, about where they're going to be sitting. Is one going to be on the right? Who's greater than the other? And so we see this in Matthew chapter 20. I'll read it to you really quick. Matthew chapter 20 verses 20 through 28, says, Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. So Jesus said to her, Well, what do you wish? She said to him, Grant that these two sons of mine, James and John, that one may sit on your right hand and the other on the left in your kingdom. Jesus answered and said, You don't know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they said to him, we are able. And they said this not knowing. So he said to them, verse 23, you will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it's for those for whom it is prepared by my father. And when the 10 heard it, when the other 10 disciples heard this, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers, right? They're like, well, dude, that's not fair. What about us? So Jesus called them to himself and he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. Whoever desires to be great among you, let him be what? Your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus was Again, he's flipping the script. He's, he's changing. He's turning things upside down to what we think is right is actually wrong. And what we think is wrong is actually right. What we think is the right path and the right way to get to the best seat, to be at the right hand of the Father, Jesus is like, no, that's actually the wrong way. That will actually get you the least seat in the kingdom of God. Right? You, you want the greatest seat? It's not about stepping on people to get there. It's not about hurting others and exalting yourselves. No, we say it's the complete opposite. It's about becoming a slave to others, a servant to others. 
It's not about exercising your great authority over others, but it's humbling yourself. And ultimately, by doing that, God exalts you, right? This is, the, this is, what we, this is not just an example. This is a truth that God is giving to his disciples and to us. And now he's giving us this truth again in the form of this, this parable. Again, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever in their pride, because that's how it's going to happen. If you try to exalt yourself, it stems from pride. And Jesus tells us that, you know, in our pride, you will be humbled, right? But if you are humbled, you will be exalted. If we are humbled, well, then we, we can know and understand the grace of God, and God will exalt us. In verse 10, he continues, but when you are invited, right, you're invited to this wedding, where should you go and sit? He says, go and sit in the lowest place, right? Go find the table where, you know, above it, the light's out, you know, they don't have enough, you know, silverware, they're the last table to get food, you know, go sit there. That's where you need to go sit. So why, for what reason? He says that when you, when he who invited you, right, because obviously you came to the wedding for a reason. You don't just show up unannounced and uninvited. You're always invited. He's saying, the one that invited you will come up to you and say to you, friend, go up higher. Then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. Again, for whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. What two different walks that we see. One that says, hey, buddy, you shouldn't be sitting there. Go sit in the low seat. Then there's that walk of shame, right? But then if you show up in the lowest seat and he says, no, friend, go up higher, I mean, what a complete reversal. And it's not a walk of shame anymore, but rather it's the friend who is lifting up and exalting this person to sit in the better, better seat, just like God will do for us, right? God is the one who will exalt us. So the point of this parable is he, wrapped up here in verse 11. And this is a rule for, the, for our life, but the life of, you know, within the kingdom of God. Again, it's a complete upside down, a complete reversal. Mary even sings of this when she sings the song, and I think it's in Luke chapter 1. I can't remember if it's Luke, but I think it's in Luke chapter 1. It's Luke or Matthew. And she sings this, and she says this, or she sings this. She sings, he has shown strength with, with his arm, starting in verse 51. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. This is what God does. I mean, again, he's the complete opposite of, like, our worldly expectation, our worldly understanding. You know, those who in this world exalt themselves, they're going to be humbled someday. You know, the the best that they're ever going to get is what they find in this life. And do you know that it's really not that great? And it really doesn't satisfy what we want and what we need? And so they'll get what they, what they want, but it's only for a time being. And it's not, it doesn't fully satisfy. I mean, Jesus even speaks of this to those who, get, you know, when they tithed, when they gave money to God, but they did it openly, right? They did it openly and they made a spectacle of it and they wanted everyone to know and they brought out their checkbook and, you know, they wrote out, you know, with all these zeros in it and everyone's like, whoa, 
this guy is, you know, not only is he rich, but look at how much he's giving to God. You know, like, he really must love God. This guy must be like, he's definitely getting the seat right next to God when we get to heaven, right? And what does Jesus say about that? He says, you'll get your reward. And what's your reward? This little honor and respect that people have for about 10 minutes on earth when they see this. At the end of the day, they go home and they forget about it, right? That's it. That's your reward. That's all you get. And Jesus is like, no, when you, when you give, you know, do it between you and the Lord. Don't make a spectacle of it. People don't need to know. And you'll be rewarded in heaven, right? Something that lasts for eternity, something that only God can truly give, which only can truly satisfy us. So again, Jesus says in verse 10, go sit in the lowest place, right? If you're going to be sitting in the wrong place, which place should it be? Should be in a lower place rather than a higher place, right? And again, Jesus isn't just teaching us good manners, but more so a lifestyle that speaks of the lowliness of our mind. And a lowliness of mind that also esteems others higher than us. And we have to do a better job of this, especially like within the church. If we, well, it should, first, it should start within your family. It should seep its way into the church, and then it should seep its way outside the church. Right? Like, because if we can't do it at home, well, then we can't do it at church. And if we can't do it at church, well, then how, how in the heck are we going to be able to do it to those who aren't our brothers and sisters in Christ? Right? But, but Jesus calls for us to do this. I mean, Jesus did this for us when there, you know, when there was no church, when there was none saved, in a sense. Right? Like, he humbled himself to the point where he died for us when we were considered ungodly. And look at this. This is what, what Paul says in Philippians in regards to, to Christ and the ex, not just the example, but the same spirit that we can and should have, we find in Christ, should be in us. He says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 11, this is a big one. He says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. And he goes on to say, he says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Right? So Jesus isn't one of those guys, and he's not one of those parents. It's like, do as I say and not as I do. Right? He says, do as I say because it's what I did. And so he says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, a slave, and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Look at this, verse 9. Therefore, God also has done what? Highly exalted him, and given him the name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven, those on earth, and those under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. How amazing is that? We see the perfect example set forth right here, that Jesus humbled himself, and who exalted him? God did. Now, out of anyone on earth who had the, the, the right away or the ability to actually exalt their own selves, it would have been Jesus, right? I mean, he was perfect. He's God. Like, he, he could and deserves that. But again, 
I'm thankful that he humbled himself to the point of death because it's through that death that paid for my salvation, right? And it's that salvation that leads me to live a life here that should be the same as the mind of Christ, which humbles myself. And ultimately knowing that God is the one that's going to exalt me, right? It's better to have the recognition and exaltation and the reward from God, which lasts forever, than from man, which only lasts for a moment. So we know that we should not be prideful, and pride leads to destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall, right? You will fall, and when we lift ourselves up, guys, it's not like a a tiny little stumble. No, like when we lift ourselves up and we exalt ourselves, and then we get humbled, like it, it hurts, but it's a good thing. Like it brings us to a place of, of humility where then we can actually grow, right? And we see a perfect example with King Nebuchadnezzar. You guys remember King Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel? He did, right? This was the guy that basically ran the world at the time, right? He was the king of Israel, but in the sense of almost the entirety of the world, he conquered the whole place. And one night, he's standing there, right? And he has a dream, and he has a dream about a tree and this tree being cut down. And so he asks the prophet Daniel to interpret what this dream means. And he warned him that the dream was about Nebuchadnezzar's pride, right? And so a year goes by with these warnings, and Nebuchadnezzar is walking around his, his palace, his kingdom, right? And he thinks this. Well, he says this, and he thinks this. In Daniel chapter 4, it's a really interesting couple chapters. In verse 30, it says, The king spoke, Nebuchadnezzar, and he said this, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? He's thinking, like, I'm the man, right? You ever just seen somebody who's cocky and you're like, that's not it. Like, it's just not a good look on people. And here he is with this arrogance of this, all this is mine, right? Satan comes to tempt him and says, look, if you worship me right now, all this could be yours. Well, dude, this is what he's doing. This is all mine. And it says in verse 31, while the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice from, uh, fell from heaven and said, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. And immediately, he loses everything. Loses everything. The, the pride here brought destruction. It, it, the haughty spirit brought a fall. And the fall was great, guys. I mean, it was like, it was like Humpty Dumpty falling off the wall. I mean, it, it was great. And it was so bad that not only did God take away the kingdom, not only did God take away the position, but there was so much... Um, shame involved that it came to a point where God turned him into like a wild animal for seven years for seven years he was in the in the wilderness as acting like a beast could you imagine that like remember our remember our king well yeah he's out there like eating the grass right now mooing like a cow why is he like that well this is what happens when you become prideful And who does that? Well, God can do that, and God will do that, because that's not how you were created. That's not how you 
should be acting and what you're intended for. But what happened? There, there came a point where his pride was broken so much. And listen, it's not like we shouldn't, we shouldn't want, to, want to get to that point where God has to you know, tear us down that far to bring us to the point where you know, Nebuchadnezzar is going actually going to be humbled and God's going to restore him. If that's what it takes, God will do it because he's a good, good dad. He's a good father. He's a good God. And he cares about us, right? But we don't want to think that, you know, that's what needs to happen. And so we, it's really important that we understand this and we can humble ourselves now so that we don't get to a place like Nebuchadnezzar did. So Jesus continues on in verse 12. says, He also said to him who invited him, When you give a dinner or a supper, do not ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, nor your neighbors, lest they also invite you back and you be repaid. So the man he's speaking to is the same man in verse 1, the ruler of the Pharisees, one of the rulers of the Pharisees. And Jesus is going to give here this important man, this important man, some tips on the next time that he sets up a party like this. And so Jesus sees that his host chose his guest specifically, right? In a specific sense that, that it had exclusion, it had pride, it was lacking love to others. And so Jesus told him to not only ask those who could repay something, Jesus told him to not only ask those who could repay him something to or as the host. He's asking him to invite others who couldn't repay. It's like, you know, he was inviting the best of the best in his eyes. And Jesus is like, that's not how the kingdom of God is. That's not how we should act, right? And I think, I think of us in this room on Sunday mornings, you know, we should be loving and exalting one another every single week, that it doesn't matter who walks in these doors. And I think we have a hard time of doing this. We can be very cliquish. We can be very um, partial to how we judge people the moment we, we see them or within the little bit of conversation that we have that, you know, I'm not going to talk to this person because, well, I don't know, they look awkward or, you know, maybe they're too young. Well, that's not how Christ has taught us and the spirit of God, right? I mean, Jesus is no, God is no respecter of persons and we shouldn't be either. We shouldn't be partial to people. And James speaks of this, okay? James says this in chapter two, verses one through seven. He says, my brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. He says, and he gives an example of someone who's rich. He says, for if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you would pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, you sit here in a good place, and say to the poor man, you stand there, right? Rich man, you sit here. Poor man, you go stand next to the bathrooms. Or you sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? He said, listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? Well, you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? And I think James gives us just an example of you know, someone who's poor and rich, I think it's, it's, it goes beyond that. I think he's just giving us an example of the heart and the partiality that we shouldn't have, but he uses the poorness and the richness as, as an example. And so, I mean, you think about it this way. 
I've seen this within churches. I've heard it where a church will cater to the rich people greater than the poor people. And why would they do that? I know of a church that specifically holds a banquet every year, and they invite all the rich people in their church to come out and basically kiss their butt. Why would they do that? Money, but, but, but why? They're greedy, right? They're greedy, and they want their money, and they know that rich people can give money. But what can poor people give? In the sense of money, nothing, right? If you're poor, it means you lack money, and if you lack money, then you can't give money, right? And if you can't give money to me, well, then you're of no use to me, right? This happens in churches today, right? We have friends who have, go, have went to this church and specifically told us this happened within a church. They would see who gave the most, and then they would treat them better. And now, I want to preface that we are not a perfect church, but one of the things that we do to help us as pastors is that we don't look at who gives. So we have, between me and Pastor Kevin, we have no idea of the amount that people give. I don't know if Joe gives $1 or if Kate gives $10,000. I have no idea. And you know how that helps me? I treat each one equally, right? Because I think what happens is sometimes because we're human, we could want to kiss the, the person's butt that, sorry, I, there's a lack of a better way of me saying that. I, I, don't, I can't think of it right now. But, but to, to uh, what's a better way of saying that? being partial. I mean, what James is saying, right? Sucking up to them and, you know, like, I, I know that there's people in our church who are millionaires, right? I mean, would it make sense to me to go and, and to, like, you know, try to mooch off them and treat them better? No. I mean, but, but I think that's how we, we can see as people. That's, but that's not a good thing. And that's not a good example of Christ. Why is it not a good example? Because think of it this way, when Christ died for us, and, and here's the big picture of it all. When Christ died for us and he invited us because he had to invite us because we couldn't make our way into the party at all, he had to invite us, he had to initiate. When he invited us, he didn't invite us who were rich, who were great, who were honorable. None of us were, right? None of us had anything to offer to God. It says that Christ died for us while we were ungodly, while we were still in our sins, we are those, as Jesus says here, the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind. That is you and I, and we can't forget that. That is the gospel story that Jesus died for us while we were yet still in our sins, that we couldn't do anything to earn ourselves or to, to promote ourselves or to exalt ourselves into the dinner party. It had to be invitation only. And Jesus invited those who couldn't give him anything. Right? We, I couldn't give him anything. I had nothing to offer. And if Jesus, didn't, if Jesus invited only those who could offer him something, do you know how many people would be at that party? It'd be three. It'd be God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that'd be the only people there, right? It'd be the only people because none of us can repay anything. We can't. And so it's a beautiful picture of God's grace to us. Because look at this, Romans chapter 5, and I'll end here. It says this, For when we, speaking about all of us, all humanity, 
but speaking to you, for when we were still without strength, okay, we had no strength. It, read it this way, that we were utterly helpless. We were utterly helpless. It says, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. When we were without strength, when we were without anything to offer, and not only did we not have anything to offer, but we could care less or we couldn't care less that Christ was actually dying for us, that he died for the ungodly. He says, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Right? Paul, Paul's like saying, like, barely would someone die for someone else. Like, th- that was like a low probability of, of happening for a righteous man, for so, a good man. But now we know that there is no righteous man. He said, yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God, God didn't die for righteous men, and God didn't die for good men. He died for the opposite. We were unrighteous. We were bad. We were evil. As Paul says in the, in the previous verse, that we are ungodly. But it says God demonstrates his own love towards us. How does he do it? And that while we are still sinners, he died for us. Is this making sense? That, that we had nothing to offer, that we were no good, right? But here's the thing. In God's eyes, like, he loves us, and he, val- he sees great value in us, right? Even though we had nothing to offer. And that's, I mean, that's true love, right? To love someone, to lay down your life and not expect anything in return. And, and Jesus couldn't expect anything in return because he knew that we couldn't return anything, right? I mean, like... And, and also knowing that some would not even accept this show of love, right? That they would reject his offer, and yet he still did it for them. And so it's a great picture here in this, this lowly place that Jesus takes the lowly place. God exalts him, that every knee and every, every tongue, every person that has ever lived will confess the name of Jesus, that he is Lord, and they will bow down to him. Whether it's in this time or the time to come, they will stand before him, and they will confess him as Lord. But it's important that we do it now, while we have the opportunity to be redeemed, to be saved, to be forgiven, than to wait and reject this free offer of salvation and grace, and to wait and to be forced to do it when it comes at the time when we have to stand before Christ at the, the great white throne of judgment, and we're forced to do it because it is what he's worthy of doing. It's important that we do it now of our own accord because we've seen and God has demonstrated his love to us. And so again, the great thing is, guys, you don't have to repay anything. You don't have anything to offer. But I think what we find out is once we are born again, the only thing that we can offer is what? Our life ourselves, right? Jesus says to do three things, to take up your cross, to die, up, die to yourself, and what was the other thing? And to follow him, right? It's as simple as that. But that, that's like, to think that's, uh, that's even giving Jesus anything, I mean, that's, that's what we're called to do. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for another week, another time in your word. I pray that it will continue to resonate in our minds and our hearts as we, we go throughout our weeks. Lord, I would pray that you would, you would change us by your spirit and, and make us aware and, and understanding of certain environments and places and people that we try not to exalt ourselves, but that we esteem others higher than ourselves. Lord, that it would start within our own homes, that it would start within our own families, that it would seep its way into this church, 
on Sundays, Wednesdays, and then outside of the church. Lord, that we would not try to exalt ourselves, but Lord, that we would be humble in spirit. Lord, that knowing that you ultimately will exalt us. And Lord, we thank you for the example set, set for us by Jesus. And not just as an example, but the show of love and the demonstration of love that he has given us. And so we thank you and love you. In Jesus' name, amen.